Hello, my name is Garrison Lovely, and I'm not that interesting, but this is the most interesting people I know. Conversations on science, ethics, and politics. Today's guest is Spencer Greenberg. Spencer is a mathematician, social scientist, and entrepreneur. He received his PhD in applied math from NYU and is the founder of SparkWave, a social venture foundry. As we discussed, SparkWave has created a number of apps tackling problems like depression, anxiety, and finding participants for academic studies. Spencer also created the site clearerthinking.org, which offers free online tools and training programs to help users avoid bias and make better decisions. The site has a lot of fun and thought-provoking exercises. My favorites that we didn't dig into are common misconceptions, the political bias tests, and leaving your mark on the world. Spencer has also spoken at Effective Altruism Global and been published in the New York Times. On the episode, we cover life-changing questions you can ask yourself, intrinsic values, some hard problems for utilitarianism, Sparkwave's app for anxiety and depression, how to ensure social ventures don't become evil, effective altruism, the profound challenge of doing good in the world, the connection between our happiness and the news, gaming Facebook for your happiness, the best legal approach to prostitution, Spencer's thoughts on fiction and nonfiction, why memorizing is underrated, and the best description of Burning Man I've ever heard. When I first conceived of this show, Spencer was one of the first people that came to mind. As you'll soon see, he has informed and well-developed thoughts on a huge range of topics. He's changed my mind quite a few times, and I appreciate his approach to thinking through the hardest problems we face as a species. This is Spencer Greenberg. Spencer, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. So, Spencer, you do a lot of different things, um, and I think we're going to cover a lot of it today. Uh, but I just wanted to start with like clearthinking.org. Uh, could you just tell us what that is? Yeah, so clearthinking.org is a not-for-profit project that we started to try to help people make better decisions, understand themselves better, reduce bias, and we have over 20 free tools and training programs you can use on our website. So if you're interested in decision-making or bias or things like that, I recommend checking it out. Cool. Yeah, I've done uh, quite a few of these like, you know, within the last few years and then a bunch uh, recently to prepare for this. And uh, the one that I think was my favorite was uh, the Life-Changing Questions module. Can you just like, give some background on that? Yeah, sure. So I think we all know that sometimes questions can have profound effects on us. Um, but we wanted to investigate which questions have the most profound effects on us. And so we actually started this project where we gathered hundreds of questions. We quickly winnowed it down to about 100. And then we scientifically tested them, where we would have people answer the question in an open-ended way, and then rate how valuable the experience of answering that question was to them, mm -hmm. based on their own notion of it being valuable. Mm. And we use that to actually boil it down to a set of questions that people reliably find it valuable to respond to. And so it's about 32 questions. You can do them for free on our website. And we also make a physical printed deck. So if you want to do it at a party or do it with your friends or family, you can do that as well. Yeah. So I, I did this yesterday. It took about an hour and a half. Um, I found it really valuable, honestly. It's not just like interesting, but some of the questions are like, how would you change your life to make that thing a reality, that thing that you want to do more of. Um, yeah, and so we've gotten some really good feedback. Um, so we, we collected a lot of data in the process of like figuring out the set of questions. And so you know, just to give you some examples of some of the things that people said in response to it, um, one, we asked people at the end to, to write what they learned from the whole process mm -hmm. of doing it. And so one person said, um, I learned that my anxiety is holding, holding me back from achieving what I want, and I should get therapy for it. So, you know, that's the kind of thing we're looking for is something actionable where someone really feels like, oh, they would notice something they ha maybe hadn't identified or hadn't clearly put into words before, mm -hmm. and now they have something to do based, based on that. Um, or another person said, I realized that I let my husband control my life, and I need to control more of what I do. Um, a third person said, 
Uh, I realize that there's an ideal life very close to what I have now, but I need to make it happen. So those are the kind of effects that we're looking to create in people. Yeah. And just to give you an idea of some of the questions for your listeners, um, so one of the, the, the very first question, we try to start it off on a light note, it gets kind of more dark and intense. For sure. <laughs> but the first question is, what in life gets you really excited? Um, and this is a really fun question because I've asked this to some, sometimes to people just one-on-one and mm -hmm. they'll just go on for 10 minutes with their eyes lighting up about the thing that they really care about in life. So that's a fun one. Yeah, I mean, it's great first date fodder as well. Um, I think that, have you, are, you, are you familiar with the 36 questions to build intimacy? Yeah, and so that largely inspired this actually. Uh, those, the 36 questions to fall in love was a set of questions designed to create intimacy between two people. And that got me thinking, well, what else can you do with questions? What else, you know, so they sort of optimized it in one direction and so we thought about, well, if you optimize it in a different direction, optimize it for producing self-insight or a valuable experience for yourself. Yeah, and, and the context for those questions is some researchers put two single people in a room who are both, I think, like man and woman heterosexual and had them ask each other 36 questions with like pauses to stare meaningfully into each other's eyes. And some crazy fraction of them like made out when presented with the opportunity and then there's a New York Times article about it, and it like started this whole thing. And I think the author of that article actually married the person they, they did this exercise with. <laughs> and so the takeaway is like, you know, two people, if you ask the right questions, set the right mood, um, you can build intimacy with like probably way more people than you previously realized. Previously realized. Yeah, and this sort of uh, leads naturally to something that we kind of were communicating about before, which is the idea of small talk and like how often we end up talking about things with people that aren't very important to us, where neither party really cares about the thing. Yeah. And it actually is possible to have much deeper, more meaningful conversations, but it's often hard to get there. Yeah. And so that's actually why we ended up making this physical deck that you can get on our website where you can, because you can use this with friends, you can use it at a dinner party. And we've actually run some events where we've used this and just had fantastic experiences where people who don't know each other very well are answering these questions together and just getting way past the level of depth you normally have with someone. Yeah, I was going to ask, like, do you do small talk? How do you interact with like people and how does this inform that? So I'm someone who really doesn't like small talk. Um, I understand that small talk has value. For example, it helps avoid awkwardness. It also gives you a sense of a person. You can have, kind of learn about them slowly and you can kind of learn about slowly what they're interested in and not sort of overstep your bounds. So there's definitely value in small talk, but I just happen to, to really not like it. And mm -hmm. so I'm always looking for ways of how to push past it and how to get talking about something that the other person really cares about or that I really care about, um, but it's not always easy. Yeah, yeah, I found that within the effective altruism community, it's the, one of the only places where you can go up to a bunch of strangers and ask a question like, would you push a button to end all life? And they would like engage with you and not think you're like a total psychopath. <laughs> yeah, and I think in every community, there's some questions like that where like you can cut to the, more of the core of things if you know enough about, oh, we have these shared ideas, we have these shared values, but it's really challenging when you meet a new person and you don't have that shared context. Yeah. Um, and so some of these life-changing questions, I try to find ways to work them into conversation more naturally. Uh, so, for example, I'll say, hey, I've been developing this set of life-changing questions. Would you want to answer one? And people love that. Actually, that's like totally socially acceptable. And they say, oh, cool. Yeah, I'd love to answer one. Um, but, you know, so trying to find ways to kind of cut past that, that the superficiality that we start with when we meet a new person. Yeah. And do you think vulnerability is a big part of this? You know, people willing to share intimate details about themselves? Well, you know, it's really interesting because I've, in developing these questions and, and trying them in groups, I find that people are actually quite willing to open up mm -hmm. about a lot of things, even with people they don't know very well. And I think a, like a larger barrier is often just getting to that place. Like how do you get from, we're talking about the weather to we're talking about the things we really care about in a non-awkward way that doesn't lead a ba leave a bad impression. Yeah. But once you get there, if you get, so this is something I've been thinking about a lot lately is 
the redesign of social roles. Mm -hmm. You think, well, if you put a bunch of people in a room together, they'll just self-assemble into you know, having great conversations and having a great time. And I think the reality is that's usually not true. Yeah. And so by actually adding extra constraints or adding extra social roles or maybe relaxing social roles that are normally there, you can actually often produce a better experience for people and sort of fascinating how that can happen. So if you say, I've heard of people throwing dinner parties where they just simply declare, like you're not allowed to talk about any small talk, you're not allowed to talk about work, only allowed to talk about important things. It can even that can just shift the dynamic of a conversation and make it better for people. Yeah, I mean, one example I know from Burning Man is there's a telephone there that says "Speak to God," and you can go and I have not done this. I've used that telephone. Oh yeah, what was your experience like? Oh, uh, I, I I was kind of trying to play a joke on the people who ran it. So uh, I picked up and they said, uh, "This is God," and I was like, "Hi God, you must have tons of questions for me." <laughs> <laughs> and they were really baffled. They're like, ah, uh, ah, uh, ah. Uh. They had no idea what to say. I thought it was pretty funny. I was just pranking them. Yeah, yeah. I, so the person I know who used it was like very impressed with the level of sophistication of the answers. But the people on the other end, I'm sure, were getting just the most interesting content from the, the callers. And it was just like a total stranger. You're just bearing your soul to them, presumably. Yeah, um, I think it's a wonderful idea. And I mean, to your point, people do get concerned about being vulnerable. They do get concerned people will judge them. But if you set up the right set of social rules where it's like, okay, mm -hmm. to talk about more important things, my experience, mostly people will do it. Um, and they will, you know, they'll kind of roll with it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, some of the other questions, um, one is like, what are you taking for granted that you want to be, remember to be grateful for? And, you know, this ties to like cognitive behavioral therapy, right? Thinking about like gratitude. Yeah, well, you know, I think gratitude is not usually a part of like core cognitive behavioral therapy, um, but it is used in the positive psychology literature a lot. Um, this idea of, for example, um, coming up with something you're grateful for, once every night or maybe three things every night and there's some studies indicating that that tends to make people happier actually this ties into some research we've been doing because something that's always bothered me about that research is that it seems like there really is a difference an important difference between different people and how grateful they are and that does seem just anecdotally to make a difference in how happy they are mm. those people who are just kind of grateful throughout the day yeah but it doesn't seem like it's the sort of thing where they're just sitting down at the end of the day and being grateful. It seems like it's more integrated throughout the day. Mm -hmm. And so we started wondering, is there a way that we can reconstruct that, where we can take someone who doesn't have that mindset and actually give it to them? And so we actually developed a new program we're actually going to be releasing soon on clearthinking.org called Happiness Habits. And the idea of it is we have you pick an object in your environment that you tend to see maybe 15 or 20 times a day. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's walking through a doorway. Uh, maybe it's picking up a glass to take your first sip of a beverage. And then we try to associate that with um, a behavior, like thinking of something you're grateful for, to try to train you to say, have 20 grateful thoughts throughout the whole day, rather than just trying to do it at the end of the day, with the hypothesis that that actually might work much better at making people happier. And actually, we ran a study. We have some initial data that we're going to release pretty soon, where we actually do, we seem to actually get a boost in people's happiness over three days, which was really, really exciting to see. That's cool. That's cool. Is that similar to like a trigger action plan that, uh, that what is it called? Um, yeah, so tri trigger action plan or implementation intentions was the original name, I think, the research team gave it to it. Um, so the idea of implementation intentions is you say to yourself, when this thing happens in the world, I'm going to take this action as a result. And it's a very useful self-improvement technique if you're trying to change your behavior. It's kind of trying to, trying to make a plan of what you're going to do in different circumstances. Um, this is an application of that concept where we're trying to do it in an incredibly specific way. Say, every time I walk through a doorway, I'm going to think of something I'm grateful for. Or every time I take my first sip of a beverage, I'm going to think of something I'm grateful for, to try to actually change sort of the, the nature of your gratitude. 
Yeah. And what, what's your favorite question on this list? Uh, do you have Oh, one? for the life-changing questions? Yeah. Ooh, um, there's, this one's a little bit intense. Uh, it's hard to pick favorites, but I do really like, um, what do you want to make sure you do achieve or experience before you are gone? Yeah. Um, and I think that that uh, is a question that sort of we all should ask ourselves at some point. You know, we all have a finite lifespan, and it's important to know what you want to do before you're gone. Yeah, yeah, there's a few at the end that get at this. There's one which is like, if you're going to die exactly 10 years from now, how would you change your current behavior? And I think that really focuses, like, you know, the impact that you'd want to have. Um, and then the more extreme one is, like, you're going to die in a week, what do you do? And at least for me, it was, like, very different answers. Like, the 10 yeah. years is, like, positive impact on the world. The week is, like, having meaningful relationships and connections with, like, the people that mean the most to me. Yeah, exactly. And those three questions about death are trying to all get at different aspects. Yeah. So the 10 years one, 10 years is still a lot of time. You can still do a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. It's supposed to be about focusing you on what are the really most important things? Mm -hmm. uh, whereas the one week one is sort of like, what is most meaningful in your life right now? You know, who do you want to spend those last moments with? Yeah. And it was also nice. You can see other people's answers for each of these questions. And yeah, we give you, they're obviously anonymized, but yeah. we give you, show you some anonymized answers by other people. Yeah. I realized like I have very different ways of thinking about this stuff than, than most people. Um, which, I mean, the sample of people using this, like, do you think it's fairly representative of, you know, the United States or the world more broadly? Well, definitely not of the world. I mean, the, we originally tested these on people in the U.S. So mm -hmm. it's probably, you know, somewhat representative of people in the U.S., but not perfectly representative. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just like very different um, scopes of thinking. I also came to appreciate, you know, that my life overall is pretty easy, so I can think more about, like, bigger problems in the world. Whereas, like, for some people, like, the thing they might want to change is, like, getting out of, like, an enormous amount of debt or something like that. And it's, like, much more tangible and, and in your face, whereas, like, people who are very privileged and the effective altruism community might be thinking about like ending factory farming as like their life goal. Yeah. And I mean, I think until you've reduced sort of the substantial amounts of suffering in your own life or substantial amounts of pressing stress that you're dealing with, it's very hard to think about trying to help the world broadly. Yeah. And, um, this might actually be a good segue into intrinsic values. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so another thing that we have recently launched on clearthinking.org is what we call the intrinsic values test. And the goal is to try to help you figure out what are the things you fundamentally value for their own sake. Mm -hmm. And so an intrinsic value is something that you'd value even if it got you nothing else. Unlike, to contrast it with, an instrumental value, which is something you value because of what gets you. Mm -hmm. And so, for example, money is not an intrinsic value. It's an instrumental value because if money got you nothing else, there are no consequences like you could buy stuff with it or social status or whatever, people wouldn't value it. Mm -hmm. Whereas something like happiness for many people is an intrinsic value because if you got, a, if you, if something made you really happy and someone said, okay, but why do you care about it? You'd be like, well, because it made me happy. You know, there, you don't need an additional reason or a different thing, an additional thing that causes to value it. And so we actually did a bunch of research looking at how philosophers had looked at intrinsic values and how they'd categorize them and psychologists and political scientists. And then we ran our own studies and uh, we ended up uh, developing a categorization of intrinsic values, and we think there, you know, there's always arbitrariness to how you categorize things, but we were able to categorize intrinsic values in 22 different categories, things like pleasure, freedom, achievement, learning, truth, fairness, respect, et cetera. So mm -hmm. 22 of these categories. And then within each category, there's more specific statements. Um, you know, so for example, the category loyalty might have a more specific statement like, that I'm good to people who've been good to me, or mm -hmm. that I work to help my community, or that I work to help my family, things like that. Yeah, and I, I took this uh, uh, this test, and I found it pretty hard to really think about like what does it mean to 
have loyalty if it means nothing else, right? So like loyalty might mean like better relationships with your friends and family. Right. Would that be excluded from like the understanding of whether loyalty is valued? Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's a tough mental operation to do, say, would I really value this thing if it got me nothing else? Because usually things do get us something else. Mm-hmm. And so it is hard. And I think that's one of the, the difficulties of reflecting on your intrinsic values. But I think it's really valuable to try to figure it out. And that's why we made this test, to try to make it easier. And there are a number of reasons why it's useful having a sense of your intrinsic values. Um, but one of them is that these, one way to think about your intrinsic values is they're sort of like your ultimate aims that you, you're trying to achieve. Um, you know, so you might have an intrinsic value of your own pleasure, but you might also have an intrinsic value of your children achieving the things that they want to achieve. And you might have another, another intrinsic value of truth, et cetera. And those are sort of like the ultimate aims of your value system. And then you can ask yourself, like, are the things I'm doing in my life, are they actually building towards these intrinsic values of mine? Because actually, pretty often people fall for what I call value traps which are things where some, some activity, maybe it used to be associated with intrinsic value or you thought it was associated with your intrinsic value, but as you do more and more of it, it no longer is. But you kind of forget because the human brain doesn't naturally think in terms of instrumental versus intrinsic. You just mm-hmm. think, I have a goal, mm-hmm. right? So an example might be someone who goes to med school because they think, I really want to help people's lives. Yeah. But maybe you know, after many years of going to med school, they sort of forget that that was really their aim and they end up you know, getting pushed into some area of medicine where they, they feel like they're not being that helpful to people. And then, you know, if they could reorient and say, wait, what, what is my value here? What is my intrinsic value I'm aiming at? It can actually help you make these plans more effectively and avoid kind of just pursuing goals because you've been pursuing them for a long time. Yeah. I mean, I th- I've seen this in a lot of people where you go to a good college and then you like want to do some pro-social career then you start doing well in school and like then you don't really know how to get into that career and then like the consulting firms and the investment banks and the tech companies come and like convince you that like you can do well and do good and then you go work there always with the intention of like doing something more down the line and then you just see people who like five years in have kind of forgotten or maybe they were never that serious in the first place but i think many of them actually were and they just they're the type that you know like achievement they like getting recognized for their abilities and and these incentive systems have like kind of hijacked that and it leaves them like with maybe a lot of money and career capital but not working on something that they care about yeah and i you know i think as long as they're not causing harm to others there's nothing wrong with that except that it may not actually be living to their own values Mm -hmm. and i think that does unfortunately happen pretty often because uh while we are we are driven by our intrinsic values we're also driven by a lot of other things we're driven by you know sort of defaults like what have we been doing consistency we're driven by other pressure from other people. We're driven by immediate needs like, oh, I need to pay back this loan or whatever. So there's all these other factors that we can kind of lose sight of the intrinsic values, especially if we don't have a really good sense of what they are. And that's why we, we made this test, yeah. trying to make it easier. Yeah, so I, I just found my results. And uh, I'm very high on well-being, like 98%, 95% higher than most people. So that's that. a very utilitarian type intrinsic value of like, Wanting to reduce suffering, yep. wanting to increase happiness broadly speaking. Yep. And then in all the others, I'm in the bottom 10 or 20th percentile um, for personal, equitable, traditional, and virtuous. Yeah. And it's ironic because like I'm very much on the left. So like equity matters to me in the real world, but it doesn't matter like by itself so much. Or at right. least I, you care I, about I it because so. of the consequences. You think being equitable leads to people being happier yeah. or more filled. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so like when they're are people with a lot more money than everybody else and money can affect political outcomes and like inequality is like a direct harm above and beyond any, you know, specific psychological effects inequality has on people. Yeah. And it's interesting to think about because some people value 
equality for the reasons that you do. Other people value equality for its own sake. Mm -hmm. They think, and, and I actually, I'm somewhat sympathetic to that view. It, so imagine you have a world of 100 people and you know the world has 100 utility in total, right? You might say, well, it's better if each person has one utility than if one person has 100 and everyone else has zero. Yeah. Right, and I think that that makes you sympathetic to the view that there is something better about the utility, the benefit being spread more equally, all, all else being equal. But then even if you accept that and you say, okay, it is better to have it spread, you could say, well, how much do you care about that? Like, would you, how much would you be willing to sacrifice? Well, what if you had to, what if in order to spread equally, you had to bring it down to 90 utility? Would it be worth it to lose 10 utility in order to mm -hmm. spread it? What if you had to bring it down to 50 in order to spread it equally? And then you can start asking how, the trade-off between those different intrinsic values you might have. Yeah, so I, I thought I was like pretty confident in these, but then I watched a video, you a talk you gave at Effective Altruism Global where you did a few of these examples and my intuitions were pulled in the other direction where it's like, oh, I guess I really do care about, um, Equality or you know harm reduction like above and beyond, uh, just the net amount of utility. Yeah, well, those uh, those those were designed specifically for people like yourself, yeah, who think that they who might think that they have a like primarily a sort of utilitarian drive uh, to you know increase happiness, reduce suffering, and in fact, I think if you know my suspicion is if that if a lot of people in the effective altruism do these thought experiments, they'll realize they actually have some, at least some other intrinsic values as well that kind of go along with those with those utilitarian ones. Yeah, do you remember the other examples you gave to kind of prime people's well, intuitions? I, I give one example where I say, okay, imagine two worlds. Uh, they're both really happy worlds. Like people are really happy, very little suffering. Uh, world A is slightly happier, but it involves everyone being hooked up to machines all the time that make them think they're winning the Nobel Prize at all moments. So the reason people are so happy is because everyone's convinced they're like on the stage winning the Nobel Prize. Of course, none of them actually are. Mm -hmm. World B is also really happy, but just slightly less happy overall. And in that world, people just live in a really great society where they like have goals and interact with people and do things and have basically true, you know, pretty much true beliefs about what they're doing. So I would prefer world B, even though it gives up a little bit of happiness in total. Um, you know, I wouldn't be willing to, I wouldn't prefer world B if world B was like full of suffering necessarily, mm -hmm. but I would be willing to give a little hap happiness to make people live true lives rather than being deluded at all times. So in the matrix, which pill are you taking? Oh, well, I mean, I think that's, that, you know, that's interesting because in the matrix, you can, you can kind of distinguish this idea of like short-term good versus long-term good, right? So clearly in the matrix, the people who, who leave the matrix immediately are in this really hellish nightmare scenario where they're like living in a terrible, you know, yeah. inside essentially like submarines and they're being chased all the time and whatever. And that's, that's hellish. But I think the hope is that one day maybe they can make something better than the matrix. Mm -hmm. Maybe they can make, you know, so it's like, you know, maybe not only can you get people out of this, this constant delusion, but you can, you can make something better. But one thing that's interesting about the matrix is that um, it's sort of, I don't think there's anything inherently bad about like life being in virtual reality, yeah. as long as we aren't confused about what's happening. We know we're in virtual reality and the other beings in virtual reality are real. Mm. In other words, if we're talking to simple algorithms and we think we're talking to other humans, I think that's disturbing. But if we're in VR, we know we're in VR and we're talking to humans in VR and we're happy with that fact that it's not necessarily something bad about that. Interesting. So I actually think that, you know, if the simulation hypothesis is true, that we're all in a simulation right now, I don't know if it has any meaning, like, morally. Uh, it depends on other factors, right? Like, if it turned out that there's, like, a score that all of us were being judged against and, like, the people who are good in some way got into, like, a better afterlife and everyone else got punished, then that would obviously, like, have you know, moral importance uh, if we were to learn that. But if it's just that we're in a simulation, we can't get out of it and nothing else changes. Like, I don't think 
it makes my life feel any less real. Yeah. So just to, for your listeners, so yeah. simulation hypothesis is the idea that maybe we are conscious beings just because we are part of a simulation, maybe being run by some more intelligent group or some group of humans that's trying to study different things about human behavior and imagine that one day they build like supercomputers that can simulate humans really accurately. If they simulate them accurately enough, maybe those beings are conscious and maybe we are those beings, right, in, the, in their simulations. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the idea. Well, you know, I think that w one thing that people often lose fact of is that regardless of whether the simulation hypothesis is true, we are in simulations of our own brain's making. Mm -hmm. You know, we do not ever directly perceive reality. Like when we perceive red or a particular sound, what, what we're actually perceiving is a sort of a simulation created by our brain mm -hmm. that's designed to sort of correlate with what's actually out there in physical reality, you know, particles, waves, you know, wave functions, whatever it is. So we are definitely in, we each have our own simulation. And then there's this other question of like, are we broadly living in simulation? And I think we're probably not, but you know, it's hard to rule it out completely. Yeah. Um, so yeah, but it, you know, it's simulations in sort of almost any way you cut it. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, it's like all that is, all consciousness is, is like some emergent property probably of the brain. And it's, whether it's like happening on silicon chips by, made by some aliens or happening in like our actual material world, like doesn't actually seem super relevant to me. Yeah, I think I think one thing that is really relevant is whether whether we're actually interacting with conscious beings. Like, I think I think it would be I would find it fundamentally disturbing if all other beings were not conscious or something like that. Yeah. But I think if beings are conscious, whether you're in you know interacting through a, simula a simulation or a real thing, it's sort mm -hmm. of it's unclear to me why that would be very important. Mm -hmm. I mean, it could be really interesting to you, but I don't know if it's very important morally. Yeah, so, so solipsism disturbs you. Yeah, uh, yeah, I think the idea of solipsism would be very disturbing. Yeah, I think for some people it's the only way they can feel important or special. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. But no, I, I definitely prefer to think that uh, everybody else is also a human being <laughs> and not just a product of my own mind, which would be, yeah, quite strange. Um, so on intrinsic values, um, yeah, I think that I probably don't have the intrinsic values I have here because you primed my intuitions with, with those examples. Um, but I, there's also these examples of a moral circle. So mm -hmm. uh, kind of starting with like yourself and then your community and then like universal, maybe all humans or maybe all animals and conscious creatures and people capable of suffering. Right. So we divide all the intrinsic value statements, which are like spe very specific intrinsic values into these different categories. And that's one way to divide them up, self, community and universal ones. And, you know, almost everyone has a mix of those, mm -hmm. but you can ask questions like, well, do you tend to have more universal ones than other people or, and so we actually, um, in the intrinsic values test, we'll like let you compare your, your percentile on these things to other people. Um, and then th there's other kind of interesting ways you can divvy these up as well. Like another way we divvy them up in the test is into Aristotelian, deontological, communitarian, utilitarian, and libertarian. So these are sort of like moral philosophies um, and so Aristotelian is about like being virtuous, being a good person. Uh, deontological is about following rules like, you know, you should never do X, you should never do Y. Um, communitarian is about like looking out for your group. So, you know, you know, in some traditional cultures are very communitarian values that say, it's not about you, it's about like, what can you do for your, your family? What can you mm -hmm. do for the community around you? Uh, utilitarian values which is about like reducing suffering and increasing happiness of all beings. And then libertarian values, which is about maximizing freedom and choice. Yeah, so I was 100% utilitarian. <laughs> so I guess uh, it, it pegged you there. Yeah, 30-ish percent on communitarian, 
25% on deontological, nothing on Aristotelian or libertarian. Okay. Um, yeah. yeah. So I'm very lopsided and I think my friends and family would agree with this. Uh, assessment. <laughs> so have you found that you've become like more spread out among these uh, views as you've gotten older? So I think what happened is for a little while I was, uh, at first, when I learned about utilitarianism, I immediately identified it as it. Because actually, I was 18 years old. I was reading Jeremy Bentham, and I read of course. <laughs> some Jeremy Bentham, and I was just like, oh, that's me. Like, that's, oh, that's what's called utilitarian. I just immediately identified. Actually, as I've thought about it a lot more and thought about this idea of intrinsic values, I've actually, I no longer really identify as utilitarian. Um, I think I'm more utilitarian than most people, mm -hmm. for sure because I care a lot about reducing suffering in the world and about increasing happiness in the world. It's a prime value of mine, but I actually, now I take a different view and say, um, so you can, you can kind of, uh, the way you can think about moral philosophy in different ways, but one way to think about it is, the first question is, uh, are there objective moral facts? Like a statement like murder is wrong, could that statement be true or false in the way a statement like this is a table could be true or false? Yeah, so this is moral realism, right? Yeah, moral realism. And so the one thing you could say is like, you either believe in moral realism or you don't. Right. If you believe in moral realism, then you can sort of start to ask questions about, OK, but what then what is the objective truth about morality? Is it what you know, what God says from some particular religion or is it utilitarianism or is it, you know, the categorical imperative? Right. Uh, if you don't believe in, in moral real, realism, then what what are the questions there? And I think the questions there are. Uh, from the way I look at it, what are your intrinsic values? Because if there is no objective moral truth in the world, that doesn't mean there isn't an empirical fact about what your brain assigns value to. So you can think of the brain as something that does a lot of different operations, and one of the operations is it, it assigns values to states of the world. And, so, and some of those values, are, most of the values are instrumental, you care about them because they get you other things, but some smaller percent are, are intrinsic, and those are your intrinsic values. And so that's how I think about it, as we, there's empirical fact about what states of the world your brain sense value to. And those can change as you reflect on them. And it's actually very, very important to reflect on them. And, and sometimes you'll find they're inconsistent and you can resolve inconsistencies. And sometimes they're conflict with each other and that's fine. You have to then do kind of careful thought experiments or really tap into your intuition, try to see how, you, you, how much you value this intrinsic value versus that intrinsic value. And a good example of that would be, let's say there's a case where um, your friend asks you something, and, but in order to tell them the truth, you'd actually have to hurt them pretty badly. Mm. And there, you might have an intrinsic value of being truthful, but you might have another intrinsic value of not hurting people you care about. And so you just have to, you kind of really have to introspect and, and use your intuition and, and maybe do thought experiments to try to figure out what to do in that situation. Yeah, I mean, these things are always in conflict, right? And even with utilitarianism, if you just value diminishing suffering, increasing happiness, when you get to population ethics, you get to like these really hard problems of like, is it better to have, you know, a, a billion really happy people or 10 trillion like, okay, like people. And, you know, this just unravels further. And it seems like there's no clear answer for, for a lot of these questions. Yeah. And uh, there are actually a lot of flavors of utilitarianism. And I think a lot of people who sort of identify as utilitarian don't get quite how many flavors there are. So, you know, there's questions like, like you said about, well, they're sort of like, you know, do you actually value just creating more people, even if they're just slightly happy? Um, so there's questions like that. There's also questions about, in general, do you value the happiness of beings that don't exist? Mm -hmm. you, do you feel an obligation to bring beings into existence? Um, there's, uh, yeah, so there's a lot, a lot of sort of interesting questions and sort of also are all forms of, of happiness the same? You know, is, is sort of like raw pleasure, like, you know, from, let's say, sex, equally good as, say, the pleasure of like learning something new or mm -hmm. there's some hierarchy of pleasures or the, is there some exchange rate between them? Um, 
is pleasure, is, is happiness and suffering, are they like sort of interchangeable? Can you just take a unit of suffering, add a unit of happiness and have them cancel? Um, you know, there's also things about risk taking, like if you could, let's say there, you could create a world with very high amounts of utility, but with very small probability. So like, let's see, you have a one in a thousand chance of creating a world with like absolutely a massive amounts of, of positive utility. Mm -hmm. But if, but if that one in a thousand chance doesn't occur, the world gets no utility or even has great suffering, you know, would you be willing to take it if, as long as the expected value is, is positive, you know, or do you actually care about risk when it comes to utility? So I think there's all these kind of interesting, weird questions that kind of make utilitarianism more complicated than it seems at first. Yeah. I mean, so you studied math and computer science, right? Yes. So how did you learn about philosophy? How would somebody who's not pursuing it in an academic setting, like learn more about these topics? Well, for me, it's a lot of it is just um, reading papers, reading articles. Um, I, I think of uh, knowledge as really not siloed into academic disciplines. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think the way knowledge is siloed is often due to sort of um, the historical development of a field and sort of what makes sense from, you know, a teaching perspective, the way to divvy it up. But if you want to answer questions of reality, you very often have to cut across fields. And if you are not willing to do that, then you're going to be very stymied in your ability to answer important questions. Um, because you're only going to be able to answer questions that sort of happen to fall siloed into the particular academic discipline. So I'm very much a fan of saying, well, take the things you want to know, and then you have to just chart your course across all the different academic disciplines. And maybe some things that aren't even academic disciplines to try to figure out the answers to those. Yeah. And, and so what things are most interesting to you? Oh, I'm interested in, in a huge range of things. But yeah. uh, lately, I'm very, very interested in human psychology. It's something uh, I've been working on for a long time. And uh, behavior change, especially, has been the focus recently. Yeah, so I'm guessing that refers to like Uplift and, and the Anxiety app and, and these other things from SparkWave. Um, could you just talk about like what you're trying to do there? Yeah, so um, I started this company called SparkWave, and our goal is to create new companies from scratch designed to help solve problems in the world. And uh, we, we build software, so we build software companies based on our own ideas. Uh, we'll build the first version of the product in-house, and if it's promising, we'll recruit a value-aligned, passionate CEO to run it, ultimately with the goal of spinning them out of new companies. Mm -hmm. So another way, in other words, to think about it is we create new companies to solve problems. Mm -hmm. And uh, so one of these companies is called Uplift, which we've recently spun out. Um, and Uplift is a company trying to build the best self-help for depression in the world. And the idea is that about one in 12 people have clinical depression. About half of those people seem to get no help whatsoever. And we want to give them some really good self-help option to help them help themselves to ultimately help, hopefully help them reduce their symptoms and feel better in the long term. Um, so that's our goal with that. We have another product called MindEase, which is about helping people who suffer from anxiety. Um, we call it the app for anxious people. And the goal there is to try to help people get control of their anxiety symptoms. Um, we have another product called Positly, which is a platform for recruiting people for studies. So if you want to, let's say, recruit 120 people with sleep problems, divide them into three groups, track them over time, have them do something every day, fill out surveys, do interviews, we want to make that kind of research much faster, cheaper, easier, so that we can sort of accelerate social science and make it go faster. Um, and it could, could be around scientific questions or it could be around startup or product questions about, you know, actually testing a product. Yeah, and so can we talk about MindEase? Uh, sure. I know the least about this one. So like, what, what is the app? How does it work? Yeah, so the idea is that um, we've done research that indicates that most people with high levels of anxiety don't have a reliable way to feel calm when they need it. Mm -hmm. And the thing about anxiety is you can think about anxiety as being um, bad for three reasons. One is it feels unpleasant. Mm -hmm. it's, it's annoying, right? And, um, you know, and that, that sucks. 
Uh, the second is it, it kind of wastes resources and time because you might spend a bunch of time worrying about something that's never going to happen. Uh, or Wait, could you just define anxiety actually? Oh sure. Um, so I think of so anxiety is a little bit tricky to define, but I think of it as the mental state that occurs when we think that something of great value might be at stake, might be lost, but mm -hmm. we're not sure about that. And it's sort of it's what we experience when that happens. And so another way to think about it is sort of a low level of fear. Um, if, if we think that something of great value is about to be lost, we might experience fear, like, yeah. you know, a monster jumps out in front of you. Yeah. But if you think of something of great value might be lost and you're unsure, but you're kind of focused on that at that moment, we experience anxiety. So whereas in fear, our heart might race really, really fast and our respiratory rate, rate rise a lot. In anxiety, we get kind of a lower level of those things. Or it, with fear, you might tense up your muscles so that you can fight or flight you know, run away. Mm -hmm. um, with anxiety, you kind of get a lower level of muscle tension. Mm. So, so like, I think I might have left the stove on in my apartment. Right. I'm feeling anxious about that. Exactly. Because you're like, well, you know, I might have. And if I did, something really bad could happen. It may not happen. I may not have left it on. And yeah, so that's the experience you, you'd have around that. And, and so some level of like worrying is kind of useful, right? Like Absolutely. if you're worrying about a test that's coming up, you might study more. Exactly. And worrying exists for a reason. Um, and yeah, and absolutely, some worrying is useful. And where it becomes an anxiety disorder is when it becomes not useful, when it actually becomes problematic in your own life. Mm -hmm. And you know, anxiety. There are a lot of different types of anxiety disorders. There's generalized anxiety disorder, which is really a disorder around worrying, chronic worrying. But there's other ones like uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, PTSD, where you actually are often triggered by some uh, something in the in the world around you triggers kind of mem a sudden memory or sudden re-experiencing of a past trauma. Mm. So for people coming back from war where maybe they saw a friend of theirs get shot, um, a loud bang might, you know, maybe a car backfiring or something like this could trigger a kind of re-experiencing of that really unpleasant trauma mm -hmm. um, would be an example. So there's a bunch of anxiety disorders um, out there. And uh, anyway, just to go back to what I was saying before, so we can think of kind of there being three main bad things about anxiety. One is that it can feel unpleasant. Yep. Yeah. And you, let's, you, you can do a uh, kind of metaphor. Imagine like you had a leg ache, right? Well, that hurts, but let's say you knew that, there was, that it wasn't going to cause any serious problems. It just was an ache. Okay, mm -hmm. that's unpleasant. The second thing is it can waste time because you like, spend you know, time and resources focused on stuff you don't need to focus on. Mm -hmm. um, and so that, you know, if you're worrying all day, you could be thinking about something else or doing something else that, that's more worth your time. And that would be like maybe the leg ache slows you down, you know, it takes mm -hmm. longer to get places in, in that metaphor. Um, but the third thing about anxiety, and I think the most fundamentally bad thing about anxiety, is that it, it often prevents people from doing things. And so uh, if you're, let's say you're a chronic worrier and maybe you're really worried about how a meeting will go at work, well, maybe you find a way to get out of the meeting, right? And now you don't do that meeting at all. And this is, you know, it, for it, small amounts of this, this may not be that problematic, but as this kind of spirals, it can, this can actually ruin people's lives. Um, and examples will be where someone, let's say someone has social anxiety, so they decide not to go to the party because the party is really, makes them anxious. As soon as they decide not to go to the party, they suddenly feel better. So it reinforces them. It's like a reward they just gave themselves, which makes them more likely in the future to not go to parties. Mm. Um, and then they avoid the next social interaction, and then that gives them a reward. And it can spiral out of control until the person's not leaving their home. And that's when it gets really bad. And this is going back to this metaphor of leg problem. That would be like your leg problem so bad you can't walk, and you can't, maybe you can't even leave your home. And so uh, what, when I think about anxiety, uh, what we want to do with Mindy is we want to take take someone when they're feeling really anxious, we're going to help them feel better quickly, so reduce that suffering aspect, mm -hmm. 
But we also want to help them get them doing the thing in their life that's really important, not have them avoid it, but actually be, feel like, okay, now I can go handle it. I'm okay. I can do this thing. Um, rather than I'm going to avoid the party, I'm going to avoid the meeting, et cetera. Gotcha. And, and so how does the app actually work? So the way the app works is when you're feeling anxious, you open it up. It has a big calm me button. You can <laughs> click it. We'll help you calm down. Um, we, have really, we actually run a series of studies to try to figure out what calms people down fastest. And then we have a bunch of other tool, like uh, kind of extra content you can use in the app to help understand your anxiety better and kind of help you direct you on that path of, of living with anxiety more effectively. Gotcha. And have you had results so far? Yeah, so we've been running a series of studies, and basically the initial studies were about figuring out what techniques really work to calm people down really reliably. Um, and then we've been doing some longer-term studies to see if people find it useful, and we're you know, kind of continuing processing all that data and stuff. Gotcha. Yeah. And so I had a friend who uh, has an Android, and I think it's only on the iTunes store right now. Um, yeah, I think it, it might be out on Android, or if it isn't, it will be out really soon. So, cool. yeah. Cool. And then um, Uplift has been out a little bit longer, right? This yeah. is now like a subs subscription model, right? Yeah, Uplift has been out a little longer. So Uplift is our app for depression, as I mentioned. And um, the idea of that is that we are trying to walk you through an evidence-based kind of program that takes about two or three months to try to give you the best chance of feeling better um, by using kind of the best academic results from the academic literature that we could find and kind of teach you how to use them. Hmm. And so the results... At the initial results were very positive, I believe, right? Yeah, so we ran a pilot study. Um, we, you know, we're planning a longer-term study in the future, but we ran a pilot study and got really good results. The first 80 people that completed the program got about 50% reduction in their depression symptoms, which we were, we were super happy with. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's really incredible. Um, is, is there a plan to... So when you're doing this research, um, this, you're running this research yourself, correct? Yeah, yeah. So uh, at SparkWave, three of the big things that we do are, one, we apply social science, so building products like Uplift or Mindies, where we look at the academic literature and also do our, uh, you know, our own research. Um, the second thing is we build technology to accelerate social science, so that would be like positively for recruiting people for studies, or we have another product called Guided Track, which is a platform for building behavioral interventions and studies. Um, and then the third thing is we, we design and conduct lots and lots of studies that inform the development of our applied research mm -hmm. of our applied products like Uplift and Mindies, but also that help us understand how to do research so that we can build better tools for research. So mm -hmm. kind of all connects together. And so this data that you're collecting in the course of this research, could it be published in an academic journal? Or are there different rules around that kind of thing? Yeah, so we do actually publish some of our studies. Um, but it's not a main priority for us because really, usually we have a very specific goal where you're trying to build a product that'll be helpful to people. And academic publishing takes a long time. You get, you know, even just to write the paper takes a long time to get it in the format that's required. Mm -hmm. Then inevitably, you know, you submit it. It takes a long time to hear back. And usually you have to submit multiple times. So it's just not a priority. So usually we're not going to bother going through that whole process. So I, I trust you. But if somebody is, you know, a little bit more cynical and they say like, oh, the company that created the app, ran research, and found that it was really successful. Like, how would you just, you know, build trust in a skeptical user? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that there's a few different things to say about that. So, for example, for Uplift, I mean, the original way we designed that app is by looking very deeply at the academic literature and what works the most. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that's really great is that um, our goal, I mean, the reason I created SparkWave is to try to increase happiness in the world, reduce suffering, make the world better. So very, our, you know, really the goal of the product is to try to help as many people as possible suffer less. 
And so in that sense, we're really aligned with our customers, which mm -hmm. is not always the case, unfortunately, in, in startups. Um, so yeah, really, we, we started just with the evidence base to say what works the best. Um, but the plan is long term is we're, we've been talking to a number of academics about partnering on doing a randomized control trial that would be led by an academic group, so not led by us. Gotcha. So that's ultimately what we're building towards. Yeah. We're just not there yet. It's still early stage in the product. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So there's like an independent kind of third party, right, who's exactly. overseeing that. Cool. And so, yeah, so SparkWave is, you know, trying, it's social ventures, right? Yeah. And so I guess like, I used to be more confident in social ventures a few years ago, and now I'm a bit more skeptical um, in my, this is not super evidence-based, but just like anecdotal experience, it seems like companies that even start with good intentions grow to be very big, and then they just follow the pursuit of profit, and that might lead to bad things. So like Google famously had the don't be evil slogan. They actually removed it a few years ago very silently. And um, it seems like their track record on ethics is like not as good as it once was. Um, so is there any kind of structural, first, like, do you agree with that kind of like fear? And like, the second is, is there any kind of structural way that SparkWave is going to like not follow that path? Yeah, I do agree with that. Um, and I think that uh, the way that I think about that problem is that you need to align the business model really early with mm -hmm. producing value in the world. And I think that's very easy to get wrong. So you have to be very careful about that. But basically, you want it to be the case that the sort of product you're offering is one where the more you sell it, the more benefit you're creating for the world. Mm -hmm. And the more closely you can align those things, the less pressure there is to, for them to come out of alignment. And so one of the fundamental challenges I think Google faces from this point of view is that you know, it's an ad-based product. Uh, it's how they make almost all of their money. So if you have a, if a product where you make almost all your money is based on ads, that creates certain weird incentives that are not necessarily ideal for your customers. That being said, I do think Google creates a lot of value in the world. You know, I think the, you, the fact that you can Google something and learn information about almost anything immediately is, is extremely valuable. Yeah, yeah, so I just totally forgot what I was gonna say. <laughs> no worries. Um, I mean, so you, you mentioned that like you think that it's incentives at the beginning. Um, can you think of any big companies or big examples of things that are creating a lot of value with like probably not much downside? Yeah, I think Wikipedia is probably a good example. Yeah. I mean, there's a little bit of downside because occasionally you'll have someone like edit a Wikipedia page and put total bullshit on there. Mm -hmm. But the reality is if you compare Wikipedia to the other alternatives, which is like finding the information on some random website you haven't heard of, yeah. or even looking things up in a traditional encyclopedia where the information might have more vetting, but maybe be substantially more out of date. Yeah. Might be years out of date or you know, decade out of date in some cases. Um, I think Wikipedia is just a huge win for society. Yeah, it's interesting. It's not a for-profit company. It's yeah, it's not. I think it started as part of a for-profit, if I'm not mistaken. Interesting. And J Jimmy Wales, uh, yeah, Current Affairs uh, wrote a piece about Wikipedia and it's like a libertarian socialist magazine. And as an example of like a great kind of alternative institution and, and very effective, but Jimmy Wales is actually like a libertarian libertarian and it's kind mm -hmm. of like part of his project. So it's like an interesting collective endeavor kind of project that came from somebody whose politics would not comport with a lot of the people who uh, find it so inspiring. <laughs> um, cool. So do you identify as an effective altruist? So I generally don't use a lot of terms of identity that, that, that involve identity to groups, but I do sometimes use terms of identity that are descriptive. So, for example, I identify as a New Yorker because I've lived in New York almost my entire life. I identify as a mathematician because I did my PhD in math. Um, and I, so insofar as effective altruism is, uh, is about people who want to use reason and evidence to try to 
help the world great amounts, I absolutely am an effective altruist. Yeah. But I generally don't, you know, use terms of group identity saying, oh, I'm part of this particular group of people. Yeah, it, it's always a funny, I try not to say it myself because it's like a little presumptuous. <laughs> I, it's like aspiring, you know, I, I hope yeah, to be an effective yeah. altruist, but to say that like I am doing the most good with my time or money is... Uh, right, I don't yeah. think anyone can really claim that. People can try. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so... I've talked about it on the show a few times, but I don't think I've ever properly defined it. Um, what does effective altruism mean to you? Yeah, so I mean, it's sort of it's sort of what I just said, which is just um, effective altruism. The the group of people is a community of people interested in using reason and evidence to figure out how you can do the most good with your time, with your money, mm-hmm. um, and and you can think of effective altruism as sort of. Uh, as this sort of philosophy around that. And it's associated with a lot of other things, like per- perhaps certain answers to that question or, or tentative answers to the question of how to do the most good. Um, so, for example, in the effective altruism community, there tend to be broadly three types of answers that are most commonly believed to, to, for how to do the most good with your time and money. The first is to work on problems in global health, where there can be a lot of, let's say, randomized control trials demonstrating the effectiveness of some intervention for helping very poor people. Mm-hmm. Um, an example of this would be uh, the Against Malaria Foundation, where you provide insecticide-treated bed nets to try to help reduce malaria. And, uh, uh, or another example would be Give Directly, where they try to find ways to give money to some of the poorest people in the world very efficiently and in a non-gameable way where people can't lie or cheat. Yeah. Um, and so, the, you know, so that's like one classic answer, so the global health answer to the question, how do you do the most good? Um, and that tends to focus on immediate suffering, and, it te- and, and immediately helping people, um, and it also tends to focus a lot on the evidence, like randomized control trials. Then a second answer to that question uh, would be about catastrophic risk. And uh, so this would be things like um, nuclear war that might potentially wipe out all of humanity or most of humanity. Mm-hmm. Um, or another example might be advanced artificial intelligence, which might cause really severe problems for humanity. Um, or other kind of world scale kind of events, especially extinction type events. Um, and then the third type of answer to this question tends to be around thinking about animals and saying, well, if animals can suffer, then what is done right now to animals on factory farms, for example, let's say having three chickens stuffed into a tiny cage for their entire lives, uh, might be just causing just vast amounts of suffering and something could be done inexpensively to help those animals, maybe that would be a really good way to reduce suffering in the world. And so there's kind of the three broad answers, but that being said, there are a lot of individual effective altruists that might have different answers to those questions. Yeah, and, and the framework that is commonly used is importance, you know, how many creatures, people, animal, whatever, are affected by this problem and by how much um, uh, neglectedness. So is this not really being worked on? And counterintuitively, if it's not being worked on, then it, it's actually greater evidence that you should be working on it. And then tractability is like how solvable is the problem. Um, you know, wild animal suffering is really important it affects, you know, trillions and trillions of, of animals. Um, it's really neglected. Almost nobody cares about it. But it's, like, not totally clear, you know, what we could do uh, to, to solve that problem right now. Um, so how long have you been involved with effective altruism? Uh, well, so, you know, as I mentioned, I started reading with Jeremy Bentham when I was quite young and later read Peter Singer, who now kind of is one of the, the kind of people who really influenced the effective altruism community. Um, I also, when I was young, got really interested in the study of how to become more rational and where does the human brain go wrong. I also got really interested in math and computer science and machine learning. My PhD in math actually focused on machine learning. And then as the effective altruism community grew up, it's kind of funny because 
sort of my interests almost perfectly overlapped with those of effective altruism, where there's a lot of interest in you know the philosophy of these classic utilitarian philosophers, uh, a lot of interest in rationality, and a lot of interest in the topics like machine learning and mm -hmm. math and computer science. So so when once the community started developing, I sort of we I immediately you know found you know pretty early on found that community and had a lot of shared interest with it. And and so how many years ago was this? Oh, I'm not great with number of years, but uh, I've been going to, I went to the very first uh, Effective Altruism Global Conference oh, cool. that ever happened, yeah. Cool. So how have you seen the movement develop and grow? And for context, I've been involved since 2017 only. Okay, cool. Yeah, well, I mean, it started as a, I mean, obviously, like everything, it started really small and sort of as a, you know, immature in the sense that, you know, there wasn't clearly defined answers to any questions. It was just a bunch of people with questions and sort of similar interests that brought them together. Um, and, uh, and I think it's really you know, matured in a lot of ways, um, both in, in terms of uh, people, I think, figuring out what they want to work on. And so a lot more people have sort of you know, picked a focus area and are working hard on it. In terms of the scale, I mean, there are a lot more people now, also a huge lot, a lot more money uh, is being directed to these different cause areas. Um, so yeah, it's really matured in a lot of different ways. Yeah, I, I remember when I was first getting involved, I looked at the growth rate of GiveWell, which is uh, a charity evaluator that tries to find the most cost-effective charities that help people. Uh, these are primarily through global health and global poverty interventions. And the amount of money that went towards GiveWell kind of like grew exponentially for quite a few years. And if you projected it out, they'd be getting like, you know, billions of dollars a year by, you know, probably now. Um, I don't think that's been the case. So where do you, do you think EA is kind of like leveling off or what do you think the future of it looks like? Well, I think that the, um, the amount of money going into EA cause areas has grown dramatically. I mean, I think GiveWell, there's a challenge because there's a scalability issue. Like mm -hmm. they, they can only recommend things as fast as they can find things to recommend. Mm -hmm. And then when they recommend them, they start getting filled up by donors. And then, you know, so there's a capacity limitation. So I think uh, to a significant extent, they, you know, if they haven't kept up the exponential growth, it's because they're hitting a cap on the capacity of the things that they can recommend right now. Um, that being said, I think that there's a lot of other ways that the effective altruism community has grown in terms of just um, sort of, you start hearing effective altruism ideas from all sorts of people now. You know, you hear Steven Pinker mention ideas from effective altruism or Paul Bloom or, um, you know, other really famous intellectuals. Um, or just public people. And so you really, you're beginning to see the sort of the spread of these ideas that we should be really focused on reducing suffering in the world, on making uh, people happier. Um, and, you know, I think that's it's really interesting to see that grow. Yeah, yeah. And do you think that there's only a certain type of person that will be drawn to effective altruism, like in terms of their personality, intrinsic values, maybe related to the research we talked about earlier? Yeah, I mean, for sure, it tends to appeal to certain types. You know, there's certain archetypes people tend to think more analytically. Like there's been, I'm not too familiar with research, but there's been some interesting research. If you give people moral dilemmas, those that tend to think more like n numerically or analytically about them mm. tend to have somewhat more utilitarian type values. Um, and uh, so I think there is a link there. Um, and there are certain sort of like a lot of philosophers are drawn to effective altruism and you find uh, People in computer science and math tend to be drawn to it, but there is also tons of other people, you know, so there's, there's more diversity than just that. Yeah, I mean, I find when I pitch it, I say, you know, it's a movement of people trying to use um, their time and money to do the most good in the world with evidence informing their decisions. Nobody really, like, disagrees with that. Um, yeah, so, you know, a lot of the ideas of effective altruism actually are very uh, easy to defend. Mm -hmm. um, 
And, but many people, and many people will agree to them, but they actually don't act as though they agree with them. Yeah. So I think that's really fascinating. We actually built, for, on clearthinking.org, we actually built a tool called Leaving Your Mark on the World that teaches people about how to be more effective with their, with their donations, with their volunteering. And we lay out a series of principles that I think most people would agree to if you could sit them down and actually talk them through. But many, as I said, many people don't actually act as though they agree when they actually go to donate money. And so for exa an example of one of these principles is that um, it's better to do more good than less good for the same amount of money, right? Mm -hmm. if, you, you know, if you give $100 to do twice as much good, then rather than you know, have as much good, you should of course do that. And people will say, yeah, absolutely. Um, another principle is it's actually pretty hard to guess what's gonna do a lot of good. And we, we, one way we help illustrate this is we actually have this little quiz you can take where we give you descriptions of charities that have been studied in randomized control trials. Um, and then you have to guess, what, did the trial find that it was helpful, neutral, or harmful? Yeah. And people are not very good at guessing. I, mean, they're, I, I they're, was very bad at this, actually. It's very, very <laughs> hard because a lot, of, the, a lot of things sound good, but they, because the world is very complex. So things that sound very good just might not work in practice for reasons that are not obvious until you actually try to implement the intervention. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so that's another principle that's like, it's not that easy to tell what actually, so we want to do more good with our money rather than less. We all agree on that. Mm -hmm. We also, I think hopefully people will agree if they really look at the, the data, that's actually pretty hard to guess what's going to do good. Okay. Well, how do you figure out what's going to do a lot of good? Well, you've got reason and, you know, kind of an analysis and you've got evidence. Like what else do you have? You know, those are the big tools you have. So you should be using reason and evidence to try to figure out what does more good rather than less good. Mm -hmm. Now, you could debate what is good. And I think that's where the intrinsic values come in. I think people really do disagree about what they consider valuable. And I think that's okay. A lot of effective altruists tend to lean in the more utilitarian direction. But I don't think that it has to be the case. You know, you could have someone who, who has intrinsic value of spreading truth. And then that's really their focus is trying to help people have true beliefs rather than false. But they still want to do it as effectively as possible, as efficiently as possible. And they can use reason and evidence to try to figure out how to do that. Yeah. And then there's plenty of people who are just nationalists who don't value the lives of people in the developing world as much as they do in their own country. And it turns out that if you want to help people, it's a lot more cost effective to help them in sub-Saharan Africa than in, you know, anywhere in the United States. Yeah, that, I mean, that's absolutely right that people, and this just goes back to this idea of some intrinsic values are about your, yourself, some mm -hmm. about your community, and some are universal. And, uh, and so one way to think about the effective altruism community is it's people trying to be, they have kind of shared universal intrinsic values, trying to be as effective as possible in, in, kind, of, in kind of creating those values in the world. I don't know if effective altruism necessarily agree with that, but that's sort of one way I conceptualize the project. Yeah. And what do you think the biggest blind spots or weaknesses of effective altruism as it ex exists right now? Maybe not as it exists in the ideal. Yeah. So I think there's some interesting paradoxes because one thing that happens is that suppose that you didn't believe that you could do better than others, right? Well, then you wouldn't feel very motivated to try to do a better job. And so I think this creates a bit of a paradox because the effective altruism community as a whole in order to try doing the project of being more effective at doing good than other groups, they have to sort of first say, okay, we think it's possible to do better mm -hmm. and we think we might be able to do it. Mm -hmm. But that of course creates sort of like, you know, sort of sense of, well, who are we to say that we could do better, right? And, and sort of it's a strength and a weakness because it, on the one hand, you could view it positively as like, we're going to try to do important things that matter. We try to do better than those have done before. On the other hand, it says, but who are you and why are you so arrogant? And why don't you have more respect for what other people have done? And so I think that's a, a sort of tension that will, you know, continues to exist, uh, you know, where to fall on that. To what extent do you, do you say, okay, we're going to assume others in the past have done a really good job and, 
and we're going to you know base our solutions on theirs and to what extent do you try to do better than has been done before mm -hmm. yeah I, I could see you know an 18 year old undergraduate at a top university discovering effective altruism finding out that oh did you know that three quarters of all social interventions like have no effect or a negative effect and they go like ah see and then they like go to some person who works at a charity working on that thing and then you know say that like you're doing this all wrong and that person knows a bunch of information that that undergraduate doesn't hasn't seen before. And I've actually had conversations with people who have experience in, in the developing world working in like aid organizations. And they've had some like really interesting perspectives that I had never considered. And I think this all comes back to like GiveWell does so well because it really does dig into the evidence and the data and they'll send people out into the field and, and try and gather this stuff. And it's not just like uh, we can use principles alone. We actually have to do, do the work and, and do the trials and, and evaluate that beyond just our intuitions. Yeah, I think there's this fascinating thing that happens where from the outside, fields generally have a, they want to look good, right? Mm -hmm. Fields want to make themselves look good. And usually when you go learn about the details of a field, you become increasingly confused about why things are, seem to be so messed up. Why do things not work as smoothly as they seem like they should or they seem like they did before you learned about the field? And so people will go learn about a field and they'll say, oh man, there's all these messed up things. Things could be done so much better. Uh, and then they'll maybe go into learn about another field and they're like, oh, wow, this one has a lot of messed up things too. But the, really the generalization of this is that just like doing things in the world is really, really hard. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, um, and, but it can lead to this kind of, um, I think, premature conclusion that's like, oh, everything's really done really dumb in a really dumb way. We could just be able to jump in and do it much better. Mm -hmm. But I think the deeper conclusion is there's lots of opportunities to do things better, but there's also structural reasons why things are currently not done that well in many areas. And, uh, and you have to really deeply dig into the structural reasons and it can be very hard to work around them. So yes, there's a lot of suboptimality, but it doesn't mean that you can just go in without knowing anything and grab it. You have to like really study the situation carefully, understand why is there that suboptimality, develop a strategy that might actually plausibly work, even though other people are trying to fix the suboptimality and so on. Yeah, and, and so sometimes even just the randomized control trial is not enough. It might say that this thing is effective at achieving outcome X but outcome X has some unintended consequence that actually makes things worse in the long run. Um, so one example I've heard of this is cage-free campaigns have been really successful um, at getting corporations to you know, no longer have chickens kept in cages for uh, raising eggs, I believe. And this is seen as like a big win for you know, the hundreds of millions of chickens that are affected. But somebody did a calculation to figure out like what the uh, carbon impact of this would be and found that it like depending on the assumptions you make might actually wipe out the uh, the gains to the chickens in terms of future people and how much it affects climate change and like regardless of whether that specific thing is true when you like zoom out a little bit you might just see ripple effects that you just did not intend yeah the world is just incredibly complicated um, and the more you zoom in on a topic the more you learn the more you see the complexity and the harder everything becomes I mean, I'm a huge fan of randomized control trials, and we run a lot of them. But on the other hand, there's also all kinds of challenges with them. Like, let's say you run a randomized control trial. Well, will that work when people are not enrolled in a study? Will it work on a different population? Mm -hmm. Will it work in a different format? Will it work in a different country? You know, so there's all these questions of generalizability. And uh, the closer you can make that study to the realistic circumstance that you're actually going to apply it in, the better for that reason. Um, and then, as you point out, there can be second-order effects. You know, so you made a measured certain effects, but did you, you didn't measure all the effects. And you certainly, when you do a randomized control trial, can't measure sort of longer-term 
effects or effects on, on populations outside of your study population? How does it, and you know, so when give directly, if they move money to a village, how does that affect nearby villages, right? Mm -hmm. What are the spillover effects? So yeah, the world's incredibly complicated and to, to solve really big problems, you have to be really good at dealing with this complexity, thinking through the different possibilities and trying to formulate the best strategy you can. Yeah, and so this kind of ties to another movement that I've seen you associated with, which is like the rationality community. Um, do you personally identify as that? I know going back to the, the conversation, but like, do you identify as a, an aspiring rationalist and, and what does that mean to you? Yeah, so I identify in the same way as a descriptor, as if you think of rationalists as people who are really interested in understanding how their own minds work and how their minds go wrong and how they can be more rational. That certainly describes me. I'm very, very interested in that topic. And that, you know, in clearthinking.org, we, we do a ton of work on rationality and we run lots of studies on rationality. We try to replicate a ton of effects from the literature. Um, so yeah, that, that's a very large interest of mine. And uh, the way I think about it is that in order, you know, you think of your mind as a tool that helps you understand the world. If you want to understand really simple things, maybe you don't need to hone that tool. But if you're trying to solve really big problems that are really complex, that are there are all of these different fa factors to consider, you want to hone this your mind as much as you can to make it as good a tool as possible for dealing with that complexity and understanding what the world's really like. And so I think that that's where, to me, rationality becomes really interesting. Hmm. Yeah. So people in this, I, I'm less familiar with this community personally than I am with effective altruism. Um, but like, how would you describe maybe the, the differences between people who identify with effective altruism, rationality, and then like the larger, you know, society? Right. So there's, you know, so if you think of rationalists, people are interested in like figuring out how their minds work in order to make their minds work better. Um, and becoming more rational, and effective altruists is people who are interested in using reason and evidence to figure out how to do the most good. Um, I think in practice, historically, there's been significant overlap between these, the, these communities of people. So you know, not all rationalists are effective altruists and vice versa, but, but there's a lot of people that, that are, you know, are both rationalists and effective altruists, and there are a lot of people who are rationalists interested in effective altruism and effective altruists interested in rationality. And I think where these come together is, you know, is this topic of, well, if you are trying to be as rational as possible, you also think in, sort of in terms of you want to create, if there's something you want to create in the world, you want to figure out how much, how can I create the most of that good thing that I can, mm -hmm. right? So if I think that it's good that people don't suffer, well, how do I reduce suffering the most, right? And sort of, I think that that's, you start to see a connection there of people who are trying, you are rationalists trying to figure out uh, how to get the things that they think are most valuable and how that can sort of start blending into effective altruism very quickly. Yeah, so I, in my experience, I actually haven't seen as much overlap, at least in New York. Uh, I'm a co-organizer for Effective Altruism New York, but uh, we don't see a ton of people coming from the rationality community. And I find it a little like interesting because to me, effective altruism's principles, you know, if you assume just basic things that like people who aren't yourself or people that you know also have like moral value, then you actually have like a pretty large obligation to do a lot of like good trying to help them. Um, and so I see like ration, rational, people identify as rationalists who don't follow through in the altruistic part are like either not taking it seriously or just aren't like taking the altruism part seriously. Yeah, I, well, I think that's a complex question and it depends a lot on people's values. And so it depends on their answer to the question, is there objective moral truth? If they think there is, it depends on their answer to what is the objective moral truth? And if they think there isn't, then how do they hash out you know, what, it, what does value look like in a world without objective moral truth? And, you know, I have my particular opinion on that. Like, I take an intrinsic values perspective. 
Um, and then, of course, there's just a question, even if someone thinks something is good, it may just not be a, fo a focus. So I think effective altruism, one thing that's cool about it is it brings together people who really are very altruistic. Um, rationalism, it, you, don't, you, know, you don't have to be altruistic per se to be really interested in optimizing your own mind and, mm -hmm. because maybe you, know, maybe you want to use it to, I don't know, better yourself. That's a, certainly a possibility. It doesn't have to be altruism-focused. Yeah, yeah. I, I do understand this tension where you know, I, I want to help a lot of other people, but I also recognize that I only will ever know my own personal experience. And so, you know, helping other people might help me feel better, but there are definitely situations where, like, it makes my life worse from a just hedonic utilitarian standpoint. An example would be, you know, I gave up eating meat. I liked it. It was like, easier socially mm -hmm. and just like in many ways, like logistically easier to keep eating meat. But uh, I, I no longer want to cause that harm. But like, I would be kind of lying to myself if I said it was actually making me happier in the sense of like the daily pleasure I got. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I, I don't know. I think uh, there's like this free will debate where, you know, people who don't believe that free will is a thing sometimes go like, oh, I'll just be really selfish and do whatever I want now. And uh, this podcast, Very Bad Wizards, uh, the host talked about like, well, the evidence shows, you know, being like altruistic and trying to help people with your career actually does make you like happier over the long run. So like maybe the selfish thing to do would actually be to be trying to help people in general. And I found that the communities that I've gotten involved with as a result of joining effective altruism is like definitely improved my well-being just through the, mm -hmm. the awesome, you know, intelligent, caring people that I've met. Yeah. And I think there are a lot of selfish benefits to altruism. But on the other hand, I, I think I'm, I don't love that uh, way of thinking about it because I think that if you're actually optimizing for your own pleasure, um, there are ways to do it that would not involve altruism, right? Yeah, it might happen to involve altruism at times, but I think actually, a, I think a better motivation is that almost everyone, not everyone, but almost everyone has intrinsic values that are altruistic. So in other words, you might care about your own pleasure, almost everyone does, but you probably also care about other things that, that involve other people. And m most people have also universal intrinsic values, which are intrinsic values that aren't just about the people they know personally, but mm -hmm. about humans probably or even animals. And so I think from, from that perspective, I think that's a really good reason uh, to try to optimize your impact because you probably do care about things that are universal. And so why don't you try to create as much of those as possible? Yeah, I agree. You don't need to justify it in selfish terms, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think... Uh... I mean, one example of like a way in which I could definitely increase the, I don't know, improve my social relations or increase my social status would be to take the money I'm donating to charity right now and plow it into like this free concert series that I do. And that primarily benefits other people who live in New York and mm -hmm. are able to go and do something like that. So like they're, they're very lucky in the grand scheme of things. Um, and if I plowed the money into it and made it really, really great and had free food and, you know, drinks and better lights and like all this stuff, I would get a lot more like, you know, social applause from, from my peers and I'd get the warm fuzzies of like doing this nice thing and people, Oh, this is so generous. But like, it's absolutely not helping people nearly as much as, you know, giving mm -hmm. to give directly or to against malaria foundation. Yeah. Well, you know, and there it just goes back to, well, it depends on your views on ethics and it depends on. Uh, your values and how, much, how you trade those values off against each other. Um, personally, I, I don't have any problem at all with people who, um, who have values that relate to just making their own life better. Uh, but I do applaud it when people also have values that are about helping people universally and, uh, or animals universally, and that they actually put some time and effort into those. Um, I think that's wonderful. So um, yeah, so just, it's just sort of, I think about 
careful introspection and how you value different things. Yeah, I think it's also the way you framed it as like people can do whatever, but I think it's great when they do X. Like that positive framing, I think, is a lot more enticing to people as well. Um, I, I don't know how well shame works in getting people to be better. Um, yeah, well, you know, I think some people naturally feel sort of a moral obligation, mm-hmm. um, and other people more feel excited about this kind of like, oh, I can, you know, if if uh, if I donate money every year, I can maybe save a certain number of people's lives throughout my lifetime, and wow, that's isn't that amazing and special that I can actually save people's lives, multiple people's lives? That's wonderful. Yeah, even though the uh, original framing of the kind of paper that sort of kickstarted the effective altruism community is uh, Peter Singer's like shallow pond thought experiment where, you know, a guy wearing a $3,000 suit is walking to work and there's a drowning child and he can save the child, but ruin his suit. You know, what does he do? Um, and most people answer that, you know, ruin the suit, save the child. But given that it costs about that much money to save a kid's life from malaria, buying anti-malarial bed nets through against Malaria Foundation, like we're kind of constantly walking past those ponds. It's just not right next to us. Um, but it took 30 years for that thought experiment to become uh, a movement. And it was kind of flipping from the you should or you have to to like the you get this opportunity to save people's lives every year. Yeah, and I think for different people, they feel the pull of those two things, that obligation viewpoint and that like opportunity viewpoint, they feel them differently. Yeah. Some people find the obligation one odious and makes them not want to do things, and other people find that's actually really compelling. Yeah. I, I personally find it to be much more compelling, the, the obligation, just like as a consistent moral principle. Uh, but for strategic reasons, you know, I emphasize the, the opportunity side of things. Mm-hmm. I'm outing myself right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, cool. So I want to talk a little bit about the, the far future. Um, this is something that people in the effective altruism community care a lot about, um, the idea being, you know, there will be many, many, many more people living in the future than there are right now, assuming we you know, continue to exist as a species and terraform other planets or upload our minds to computers or whatever it may be. Um, and so what, what things like concern you about the future? I think for most people, it's probably like nuclear war, climate change, kind of things that like you've seen movies about. But um, are you mostly concerned about those? Or are you concerned about other risks? So I think um, I'm concerned about the massive amount of suffering that happens every day, every moment. I'm concerned that we're not going to reduce it fast enough or maybe not reduce it at all. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm also concerned about potential catastrophic risks, like the ones you mentioned, nuclear war, climate change, bioterrorism, I think is another one, a big concern, and then artificial intelligence, uh, you know, advances in that. And so those are the the ones that uh, most concern me. Yeah, and I think... uh this kind of jumps to like another series of questions, but like how much is your subjective well-being tied up in the state of the world as it is and your expectations about the future? Um, yeah. So I do feel a deep sadness when I think about the suffering in the world. I just think that there's just shocking, tremendously large amounts of it, um, which is part of why I feel motivated to try to reduce it to some, you know, to the extent that which I, I can. Um, so that's uh, that's definitely something I feel. Um, fortunately, I don't really read the news, so I don't get constantly bombarded with it the way many people do. Um, but I because I think the news tends to be very ephemeral, and it tends to be sort of, you know, it's like ninety percent entertainment and ten percent information. And mm-hmm. I'd rather just try to get that information other ways. And you know, if I'm going to do entertainment, there are much more entertaining things to do than read the news. Sure. Um, so, but there are, I mean, there are important things that happen. It's just that in a daily news cycle, most of them are not important. Mm, yeah, so I, I do want to come back to that. Um, 
But uh, yeah, I, I find that like personally, I sometimes just get so overwhelmed by, you know, like you said, the amount of suffering that's happening just at any given moment to, you know, people in extreme poverty, to people in prison, to animals on factory farms. Um, and then I'll convince myself that like I'm unhappy because of those things. But then, you know, those things have been true for as long as I've been alive um, mm -hmm. to varying extents. But my happiness seems to be like completely uncorrelated to them. And I, I wonder how much of it is I'm unhappy for, you know, very pedestrian reasons, like I'm not getting enough sleep or, you know, I had a fight with somebody I care about or, or whatever it might be. And then I find some awful news story, you know, of which there are you know, many every day. And then I use that as an excuse to like wallow in my sadness. Yeah. Well, you know, I think this, this ties into a topic that I've been thinking about recently, which is this idea of having true versus false beliefs and then using reframing. And I think people sometimes think of reframing as like having false beliefs. Like mm. you could, you know, you could, uh, for example, there's a reframing that I love that my friend uses, which is, uh, you know, you, one way to view life is like, oh man, life is this thing that's full of suffering. Another way to view life is like, oh my gosh, we have the chance to be alive. Like that's just like this bizarrely, you know, interesting and rare opportunity. Mm -hmm. um, you know, almost everyone who's, uh, you know, ever been alive is already dead. And, you know, we could have been born as an insect or whatever. And wow, we're human beings and look at all those things we can do. And so that's a reframing technique. There's nothing, I think, irrational about that. There's nothing, there's, there's no false information there. It's just sort of like, do you want to focus on the fact that life involves suffering or do you want to focus on the fact that, holy crap, we have this amazing opportunity that, that seems like rare and precious. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's a, uh, you know, another way to think about this is like, at any given moment of the day, you could be thinking about someone who's suffering in the world, or mm -hmm. you could be thinking about someone who's having a great day or having a wonderful experience. And there's no right answer to which of those to think about. And you know, there, it's not irrational to think about one versus the other. Um, except insofar as it maybe helps you achieve your goals or, or doesn't. Mm -hmm. And so maybe if you're someone who's trying to reduce suffering in the world, maybe focusing on suffering to some extent is useful to remind yourself of what, what you're trying to do. But maybe if you do it too much, it will actually make you unhappy, which may, maybe is not good for your, what you're trying to do or, or your long-term values. And so maybe you also want to make sure to, that you're, you have enough positivity and you don't overly focus on the negative. Yeah, I, I think that tension is, is so apparent in my own life where if I weren't drawn to care about the suffering, then I probably wouldn't try to do good, or at least not to the same extent. But that same kind of like attraction um, leads me to be unproductive, where, you know, if you're really depressed, you're just not really going to get much done. Um, and so I, I don't know. Do you have advice on like how to strike that balance? Um, I know queer thinking has some tools, but yeah, well, I think um, I think it's very important to not neglect your own happiness. Mm -hmm. um, I think, it, first of all, because you probably value your own happiness. But second, because it, it really does interfere with your ability to do things in the world. And so, you know, if you're feeling really unhappy, like deal with that. Take a break if you need a break. You know, don't over, over you know, don't focus just on ever, everyone else's problems if you have problems that you need to solve. Mm -hmm. And especially with around mental health, if you're depressed, if you're anxious, get help. You know, see a therapist, see someone, try a tool. You know, it's, it's just so important to, to take care of mental health, um, especially because it can get worse if you just don't do anything about it. And so, you know, now is the best time to act. Sure, sure. And so you mentioned that you don't really read the news. So how do you get information about, you know, the state of the world? Yeah, so uh, often people send me articles, which is a nice sort of filtering system. Uh, so somebody, somebody once said, like, if the news is really important about you, like, it'll get to you some other way. Yeah. So there's that. Um, I also do use Facebook. Um, I use Facebook in a 
a pretty relentless way where I'm constantly hiding posts that I'm not interested in. Mm. So I'm basically thinking about it as like, okay, the algorithm is trying to control you, mm -hmm. but you can flip it around and control the algorithm, <laughs> right? Turn the algorithm into what you want it to be. Mm -hmm. So I'm just constantly hiding things, training the algorithm to like, this is what I want to see on Facebook. So if you see something that you're like, I don't want this to appear in the future, hide it. Mm. Uh, and every time you like, you know, it's the algorithm's watching. Every yeah. time you like, you're telling the algorithm, show me more of this. So don't like things that you don't want to see more of. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, and through relentless use of it that way, I actually find that Facebook ends up being a really positive experience for me. And also, I use it as a place to put out ideas and get feedback on my ideas, which is, I find extremely valuable. You're by far the most ambitious Facebook poster I've ever encountered. <laughs> Thanks, I appreciate that. So Spencer will put out 3,000 word posts on what comedy is with like incredible detail and footnotes and examples. And then, uh, you know, just for the few hundred people who are, you know, on the feed that day. And it's, it's pretty great. Well, I find it an incredible way to get feedback. So I'm, mm -hmm. people will comment. It will help make my ideas better. I'll say, oh, that's a great point. Let me go update the post. Um, they'll critique my ideas. I did a post recently where I said, okay, here 10 tentative beliefs I have about policy issues hmm. convince me I'm wrong. And it was just a fascinating discussion of all kinds of people telling me I'm wrong for different reasons and, and debating with me. And, and they ended up changing my mind about some things, which I thought was so cool. Do you have any examples of, of the policy, what you believed and like what you changed your mind to? Yeah. So um, one of the questions is about how to handle prostitution. Mm -hmm. And from my point of view, the priority in terms of prostitution is protecting prostitutes because they, I think, have a lot of really bad things happen to them, mm -hmm. um, whether it's being raped by customers or being arrested. Um, uh, so, so that's sort of my priority. And so from that point of view, I was originally sort of in favor of, um, of legalizing it and regulating mm -hmm. it with the idea that if you legalize it and regulate it, you can have more protections, um, you can make it safer, and these kinds of things. Um, I, some, some people debated me on the post, and I think they, I, you know, I'm not necessarily fully convinced, but I think they made a, a really interesting case for decriminalization rather than legalization. And so the case that they made uh, was around this idea that decriminalization actually might provide the most protection for the, the prostitute, in a sense, if you, de if you criminalize buying prostitution, but not selling it. Mm -hmm. So in other words, it could be illegal for John to buy it, but not illegal for the prostitute to offer it. Because if you do that, the idea, they argue, is that it flips the power balance so that the prostitute actually has the most power now in the situation relative to other situations because the John is actually the one doing something illegal and they're not doing something illegal. They can't get in trouble for it. So if the John does something they don't like, they actually can go to the police. And, they, and um, whereas if you regulate it, then suddenly there are all kinds of rules put on the prostitute. And you can imagine in that case, those who are most desperate, most poor, who are doing it in the, you know, because they're, they have you know, no other option at that moment that they can think of, are actually might still be arrested because they might end up violating some of those regulations. Right? Oh, that's interesting. Because you know, they, they're going to throw all kinds of rules about how it has to be practiced, but the most desperately poor person who's becoming a prostitute is probably not going to be following the regulatory code. Hmm. Yeah, so this is relevant because uh, in the Queens district attorney race, this came up uh, where the most progressive candidate, Tiffany Caban, argued for full decriminalization of sex work. Many of the other candidates argued for the decriminalization kind of of the sort that you're talking about, where John's uh, could still be busted and, and I think Pimps as well. Um, and I didn't engage too deeply in like with the arguments for it, but uh, Caban and her campaign and people who supported her position said that 
whenever there's policing involved at all, it's often very bad for the prostitutes where like, you know, there'll be just abuses of power. And there's like some vivid examples of this, even like legal strip clubs where police will do a raid and just like treat the, the women working there with like a lot of disrespect or just straight abuses. Um, and so I think having any kind of interaction with like the criminal justice system in the United States, even if it's protecting you, quote unquote, like can be very harmful. Um, so I guess I'd want to look at like the Netherlands versus, you know, a country that's similar, but has criminalized prostitution of the sort you're talking about. Yeah. And I would say this is definitely a really complex issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm certainly don't ha- haven't made up my mind or think that I necessarily have the best answer. Um, but I did find a bunch of these arguments fairly persuasive. And now I'm much less confident that full decrim- that, that I'm much less confident that full regulation is actually the best answer in terms of welfare for society. Yeah. Huh. That's interesting. So you seem to be using Facebook the way, like the, the best way possible, and many people are, are not doing that. So that's, uh, that's good advice. Um, do, you, uh, do you read fiction? I don't. I actually really enjoy reading fiction, but I find it that I get very captivated. And so, you know, I'll just spend eight hours reading it instead of sleeping. And, and so I have to kind of regulate it. Interesting. So, yeah, this is something that I, I got into. I loved reading books growing up and then kind of stopped in college because I was like not even doing my coursework reading. And I was like, oh, I can't justify reading this novel when I'm not reading labor, you know, history. Um, but then I got back into it after I kind of like got a job lined up and got really, really into it. And mm-hmm. the kind of teleological brain of mine is like, oh, well, I should become a fiction writer if I'm going to read all this fiction, because otherwise, what am I preparing for? <laughs> and it was like this, of course, like a weird way to think about it. Um, I could have just enjoyed it. And I read all these articles about like, what is the point of fiction? Does it make you more empathetic? Like, does it actually, yeah. like, is it just all self-justifying? Like, what, what are your thoughts on its role in the world? Yeah, well, I think, first of all, I'm pro things that make people happy. And I think fiction, <laughs> people really enjoy it. And mm-hmm. that's great. There's nothing wrong with that. And, you know, not everything has to have some other benefit. Um, I think another potential benefit of fiction is that even though it's fiction, so it's not necessarily a real story, Writers usually use a lot of things from real life, mm-hmm. you know, so usually it's heavily based on real experiences um, and it can really help you develop empathy for other groups. And so I think that's a really powerful use of fiction is to get people to empathize, to gr- grow their moral circle and say, hey, you know, that person, you know, I can relate to that person who might have very different life experiences. Even if it's not a real person, that actually might expand your empathy and your kind of moral circle. Yeah, yeah. I, I know uh, Rob Wiblin talked about being skeptical of fiction because it can make people believe not true things. Yeah. Um, and so an extreme example would be, uh, you know, Birth of a Nation is, you know, kicked off like the resurgence of the Klan in the United States. It's like this racist movie in the turn of the century. Um, a less extreme example would be like Ayn Rand, you know, creating worlds where her philosophy makes the most sense and everybody else seems stupid. Yeah, um, and, and that absolutely can be a problem with fiction is that sort of there's a question of sort of how many claims is, is a fiction book making? Some fiction books don't seem to be making a lot of claims. Um, and then uh, others maybe making bold claims about the way the world is. It's sort of like philosophical or has a political agenda. And because they create the fictional world, it can be sort of very unrealistic and kind of make their agenda look better than it is. So I, I think that is, that is a risk. But I, still th- but I you know, still think there can be benefits that go along with it. Yeah. yeah. And do you watch TV at all? You know, I've been on hiatus from TV. I'm trying to restructure my time in a way that I feel really good about. Um, you know, I'll probably resume watching TV at some point and just try to figure out how to slot it into my life. Yeah, I'm kind of... I wouldn't have put it in that formally, but yeah, I feel like the same for me as well, where it just, I enjoy it, but it takes so much time. Um, especially these hour long shows, like having an unbroken hour just is getting increasingly rare editing this podcast, uh, <laughs> doing other, other things. Um, I think something important to think about with TV 
is whether a show is like after the fact, whether you feel good about having watched it. Mm. Because I think there's some shows where you might say, yeah, I'm glad I spent my time watching that show. And other shows are like, you know what? I feel more stressed out. I feel like more like the world sucks. Or, oh yeah, Black Mirror, I, I'm not ready to watch an episode in, in many situations. Yeah, and so I think that that's an important question to ask of like, what are the, you know, what are the longer term effects that the shows you're watching are having on you? And are those effects you want? Or, you know, if you have a fun, entertaining hour of laughing, maybe that's great. Maybe you're happy with that. Mm -hmm. But if you afterwards, you feel like the world is a horrible place, uh, you know, is that the effect you want? I don't know. You just ask yourself that question. Yeah, my, my parents and I would always disagree where I would like, try and get them to watch a movie or a TV show that I loved, like Children of Men. Um, and they'd be like, oh, like, it was so depressing. Like, it was good, I guess. But it was just like, so sad. Like, why would you want to do that? And I was just like, well, art is not supposed to be, you know, just something that makes you feel good. Um, well, but, you know, I think also people have very different um, strengths of emotional reactions to things. Mm -hmm. To some people, watching a movie is actually like a lot closer to like living through it than to other people. Yeah. And so someone that could be like actually very torturous if they watch it, like a movie where really horrible things happen to people and other people kind of like have a more detached perspective on it. Yeah. Yeah. I've come to appreciate that. I think more as I've gotten older, um, just, you know, seeing or going from not playing video games for a while to playing them again. And it's like, oh my God, these are so immersive. And, mm -hmm. and then, uh, you know, a friend is over who doesn't play video games and they're like watching it reacting in real time as if it's like happening to them. And, uh, yeah, I guess I've just grown up just always bathed in all kinds of immersive media and been able to detach myself from it. But I don't think that's true for everybody. Yeah. And it's also a personality thing, right? Like, so watching horror, some people find watching horror, like terribly unpleasant. Mm -hmm. And other people find it really pleasurable, right? And I think actually largely what's going on is like personality differences around like, you know, first of all, you know, how anxious a person are you? And second of all, how do you experience adrenaline and, and other neurochemicals being released in your body? Do you experience that as like exhilarating or do you experience it as like unpleasant, frightening? Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, those inter I think those interpersonal differences are really easy to overlook. Yeah. And then you read nonfiction books, right? Um, I do, yeah. And you actually wrote something once about like, reading for knowledge. Uh, can you just explain that idea? Yeah. So, you know, one thing you can, one way to analyze the world is you can say like, if people were really trying to achieve the goal that they're trying, they say they're trying to achieve, would they really do this thing the way they sit there doing it now? And Robin Hanson's famous for like asking this sort of question. Like mm -hmm. if you really cared about X, why would you do it? Why would you do things this way? Um, and I think if you do that kind of analysis on nonfiction, you know, I think largely people would say they read nonfiction to learn things, mm -hmm. to learn about the world, learn about themselves improve their life. But if you were really trying to achieve that goal, presumably you would want to remember what you learned. And the reality is we forget almost everything that we learn in nonfiction books. You know, it's just almost, you know, a year later, almost all of it's gone. Hopefully we retain a few things, but often, I don't know if you have this experience, you go back to a nonfiction book, you're like, you may not even be able to think of one thing you learned in it, or yeah. maybe you can think of one, but not two. And so if you, so if you really read nonfiction to learn, I think there's a much more effective way to do that, which is that you take a few notes at the end of every chapter and what are the most important things that you learned in that chapter. And then when you finish the book, you review those notes and then maybe you review them a couple more times, you know, out maybe one week and then one month. Mm -hmm. And if you do that, it's sort of this idea of space repetition, you will remember vastly more of what you learned. And it's even better instead of just rereading the notes to actually quiz yourself on the notes. If you make flashcards, it's even better. And do you actually do this? Um, so I uh, built a system called ThoughtSaver. It's mm -hmm. going to be released in the public really soon. Cool. And uh, thoughtsever.com. And the idea of it is try to make it really easy to do this kind of thing. Hmm. And um, so we, the first version, it makes it easy to do this on websites. So whenever you learn something interesting from reading, you just select some text of what you just learned, click a button, and then it adds it to your system. And the idea is that we try to make sure you never forget it. 
That's cool. Um, if you solve the memory problem, then I think learning it can actually be way more efficient. Sure. Yeah, I, I've found this to be more noticeable in, in writing, where you know I'll have read a book a year or two prior. I want to cite the book for something I'm writing, end up rereading <laughs> pretty much the entire book, and like going through and finding quotes, and then flipping through and finding the quotes for the the piece I'm working on. And uh, when I'm reading for preparing for a podcast or you know for any kind of writing or anything like that. It's just a very different way of thinking about it. And you just become a lot more, at least in my experience, a lot more critical of like, are you actually going to remember this? Like, are you going to remember the name of the article that you pulled this quote from without putting it in your notes? Like, no, like you, you've, at least I'm always overconfident in what I'll remember. And we have no way kind of by definition of remembering what we forget. Yeah. And I, I think that memorization gets a bad rap for um, reasons that actually don't really hold up to scrutiny. Um, so one, one reason it gets a bad rap is because a lot of times we're forced to remember things that are pointless to remember. Sure. Like in school, they make us memorize all kinds of stuff, you know, formulas from organic chemistry or whatever. That we all actually, the state capitals. All the state capitals. You're like, well, that doesn't matter, and I'm never going to use that information. Yeah. Maybe a chemist would use the you know, list of organic molecules or whatever, but I'm not going to use it. So, um, so I think that's one reason. And I think another reason is people tend to think of memorization as purely about facts. Mm. But in fact, you can remember all kinds of things. You can remember concepts, ideas, frameworks. You can remember things that you want to change about your life. You can remember compliments people gave you mm. that you think were really important to you. Um, so, you know, there's so many different types of things you can remember and sort of the idea of memory is actually much broader. Uh, and then the other thing is I think a lot of times people think, well, you could just look things up. But that, that's true and it's not true because very often in order to use information, you have to at least know it exists at the right moment. Mm -hmm. So imagine, you know, the Pythagorean theorem. Yes, you could always look at the Pythagorean theorem, but if you don't know when you need it, mm -hmm. then you will never look it up. And therefore, it's useless to you. So the fact that you could look something up is actually doesn't mean that it's useful to you. In order to have it be useful, you have to at least know that it exists and you have to know the sort of context in which you would need it. Mm. You don't have, so you don't necessarily have to memorize the Pythagorean theorem. That's not particularly useful, but it might be useful to memorize when you would need it. Mm. That's interesting. Yeah, and I've also found that like just doing the homework once, uh, you kind of have this repository of information. You know, now on topics I've written about, I have like pages and pages and pages of notes. And it's like, well, if I need a, a link to cite a source on something, I can like use this because I read it once and found it to be credible and, and pull this information out of it. Mm -hmm. Whereas like sometimes I'll be arguing with somebody on the internet, which is probably not advised, but then I'll look something up and like I'll want to use it, but I don't want to read the whole thing because I'm like, oh, this probably gets at what I'm getting at. But, you know, you can't just trust anything you're, you're pulling out. And Yeah, and actually that's part of our goal with our ThoughtSaver.com system is that so you can really easily add stuff in there. It automatically sources it because it knows where you got it from. Mm. Um, and then it becomes a searchable database of like every idea that you thought was worth remembering or worth knowing. And so even if you don't remember, the, so A, you, we can help you remember the idea itself. Mm -hmm. But even if you don't remember it, you might remember it's in there and you can just quickly go into your account search it and be like, oh, that's the information. That's cool. Yeah, there's an app I use for saving articles called Pocket. Yeah, um, you use Pocket's it as well? cool. Yeah. I've used it in the past. Yeah. Um, why'd you stop? Oh, now I just use ThoughtSaver. Oh, gotcha. Because that, ThoughtSaver that is di sense. it's different than Pocket because Pocket is about like saving articles mm -hmm. and ThoughtSaver is about saving ideas. So one article might have five ideas you care about from it or only one idea. And, you, and the, our, our concept is that you want to capture that more specific information because Sure, capturing the article can be useful. Maybe you want to read it later. But it's not super useful from the point of view of sourcing information because you don't actually want to have to go reread the article. Yeah. You want the ideas pulled out already. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I use Pocket. And for listeners, it is a app that just pulls articles from the internet when you ask it to. And 
saves them on your phone, you know, indefinitely and takes up very little space. I have thousands of articles I've saved over the years. So if you're on the subway or on a plane, you can always read it. It'll pick up where you left off. You can also highlight sections of it. Um, so for me, that's like, especially if it's for research, I'll go and open it up and it can just like find the highlight and it serves a similar function, but I'm excited for thought saver. It sounds like, uh, it'll add to this. Um, Cool. So I, I want to finish with a, a topic. It's one of my favorite things. And I know you've been quite a few times. That's Burning Man. Um, this will be what, your eighth burn? I think it's, yeah, eighth or I think it's my ninth, actually. Cool. So it'll be my fourth. Um, so how would you describe Burning Man to somebody? Yeah. So I have a certain way of describing Burning Man that I think is different than the way a lot of people describe it. Um, uh, first of all, I think a lot of people don't realize it's really like the Wikipedia of events because almost nothing there is provided by the Burning Man organization. Yeah, it's like I mean, toilets and uh, medical. And a big effect. statue of a man. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but if it was just that stuff, it would be the most boring thing on earth. Um, what makes it interesting is that, you know, let's say it's 70,000 people, and let's say half of them or something like this have brought something to share with everyone and are giving it freely without any expectation of getting anything in return. Mm -hmm. you know, so everyone thinks it's a... Everyone here is, oh, you don't use money there, so it must be a barter economy. Well, it's not a barter economy, as you know. Yeah. You don't barter there. People give you things, give you mainly in the form of experiences or, or interesting events that they plan. And uh, so that, in that sense, it's like the Wikipedia of events. It, uh, uh, the Wikipedia of events. It's really what the people coming there create collectively. And that's what, one of the things that makes it really cool. Um, but the, another thing that I, I like to use to explain it is to think of Burning Man as three forces. And so those three forces, uh, as I conceptualize them, are first of all the force of sort of connection, love, spirituality. Um, I'm not a, not a spiritual person, but there certainly are lots of spiritual people at Burning Man. And even if you're not in spirituality, there's sort of that like force of like of sort of love and self-understanding and compassion. And you could you could certainly go to Burning Man and spend your whole time doing meditations and mm -hmm. yoga and singing and all kinds of things like that. Um, the second force is anarchy and chaos, <laughs> which is that, you know, if you, especially if you go to old, you know, think about old school Burning Man back in the day, people were just coming there doing all kinds of crazy stuff, stuff you couldn't do in normal life. Like drive by shooting ranges. Like just, yeah, crazy. They, people built a trebuchet that launched pianos into the sky. <laughs> I mean, you're just crazy stuff. <laughs> um, and so there's this force of anarchy and chaos, and you can find that there, and you can do crazy stuff there. And then uh, the third thing, is this force of sort of party and rave. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you want to just go there and go to bars all the time or go dance on the dance floor and go crazy, you can do that too. And so I think of the Burning Man as sort of the, the, these three forces, the sort of love and connection force, uh, this anarchy chaos force, and this party rave force. And sort of the Burning Man org has to keep them in balance because mm -hmm. if one of them gets too strong, then, you know, Burning Man becomes just uh, heavy fest or it becomes, you know, totally chaotic and unsafe or it becomes just a big party, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, p different people go there to seek those different things, but, you know, I think it's actually wonderful that they're all brought together sort of in a really amazing, you know, all-encompassing event. Yeah, I've never heard it put that way. Um, I guess there's some basics uh, logistics for someone who's unfamiliar. It's like in the desert in Nevada, two hours from any big city, uh, 70,000 people go there. The expectation is that you bring everything that you need to survive the, for the week. Whether you do that individually or through a theme camp or through some kind of like service you arrange ahead of time is up to you. Uh, but there's very little common infrastructure and the, the desert is called the Playa and it's dotted with theme camps that put on crazy events. Um, whether it's like a costume cult having people go and try out any kind of outfit they want and then they get to keep it, but they have to walk down the runway first while somebody announces them to um, 
the Thunderdome where two people are strapped to rock climbing harnesses and beat the crap out of each other with, uh, you know, foam sticks while people chant for death above them and everything in between. Um, and there's beautiful art that often gets burned at the end. There's, you know, vehicles driving around that, uh, have incredible lasers and sound systems and, you know, people will just be in the most insane costumes offering you some thing you've never heard of before, but it's probably going to be a lot of fun. And, uh, yeah, I, 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 went right after college I probably would not have finished college if I had gone before and uh, it's been a big part of my life since then what uh, what has kept you coming back well so for, for me I love it as a place of sort of exploration where you can just try new things all the time uh, have new experiences and I, I love the the whimsy of it where you know you can just set out in a random direction and just encounter 10 things in the next hour that are interesting and unexpected. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's one of the things I enjoy most about it. But also I bring um, friends every year. Uh, and so we kind of have this little community, which you know is really special and valuable to me too. So it's a lot of for me about just spending time with people I really care about. Yeah, and I guess like some people look at Burning Man as like this playground for the rich and the famous uh, to just waste enormous amounts of resources in the desert trying to have a, a really great time. And at some level, that's true. Um, like there are a lot of people there who are very wealthy. Uh, there's a lot of waste, and like it's hard to justify, you know, creating some massive pyramid just to burn it like five, six days later. Um, but like, what would you say to somebody who's just like deeply skeptical of its value to the world? Yeah, well, I think the skeptical view is certainly a valid one, and there's certainly criticism you can have about it. Um, uh, on the counterpoint, I think that people do often find it to be a life-changing experience for the better. Mm-hmm. You know, not everyone, certainly, but, but like, a, you know, surprisingly high percentage of people who go there come away feeling like it's had a lasting positive impact on their life. So I think that's sort of the best case for Burning Man is mm-hmm. it's a transition point for many people. It gets them to view the world really differently and, and maybe be more open-minded about different ways that they could live their own life that they never really considered or the way society could be structured. I mean, Burning Man is certainly not a model for how society could be constructed you know, in everyday life, mm-hmm. but there are aspects of it that I think we can bring into the world. Um, so for example, the fact that it's sort of this quote gift economy where everyone brings things and gives them freely without expecting anything in return is, is really magical to see that, that that can work because I think a lot of people are cynical and think, well, collective action problems, you know, why isn't everyone just come and take and not give anything? Well, the reality is actually a lot of people go there really happy to give and yeah. so it shows really this wonderful aspect of human nature that People are happy to give in many cases, and you can actually build culture on top of that. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. I think uh, one of my favorite things about it beyond gifting is decommodification. Um, so there's this active effort, maybe seen less so over time, but uh, to like get rid of any brands that you see out there. So you would not wear like a Patagonia fleece, or your U-Haul would be covered up or modified to to make a joke about it. And you know, there's no money, so if you go to a bar. You don't go like, hey, give me a vodka tonic. Like you have to make a meaningful connection with the bartender if they if you want them to serve you in some cases. And I think uh, when I compare that with like how I interact with people or not interact with people, you know, ordering food in New York or going on the subway or whatever, where it's just like you're just getting through a process. Like it just dehumanizes people on both sides of that exchange. Um, and yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I I much prefer the connection. It's it's a jarring experience to come back from from Burning Man and then getting on the subway in New York where people are just kind of shoving each other and it's just like packed in like sardines and there's still human kindness, but it's like a lot harder to find. 
Yeah, there's something about the, the social roles they create that, that bring out really good elements of human nature. Yeah. And I mean, gifting, uh, one of the things that I do is like get like these like 50 diffraction glasses, uh, cost like 25 bucks and they're paper and I pack up a bunch every day in my fanny pack and I go around and, you know, I meet somebody, uh, usually at night and, you know, you got the laser show and like you just pass them to them and, you know, some people are over it and they've seen it before, but sometimes it's like the first time they've ever experienced it. Or, you know, when you say like, yo, you can keep that, they get so much joy out of it. And it's like, so little money, it's just like a matter of, you know, bringing it there. Um, and that brings me like just as much joy giving it out as receiving it, I'm sure, for the other person. Yeah, and I think that's that's one of the most wonderful elements that people are sharing with each other and really enjoying sharing with each other and sort of like this is just this positive feedback loop. Like people create positive experiences and then that gives them themselves positive experiences and so on. Yeah, I, I'm thinking about trying to write about Burning Man from like a libertarian socialist perspective, which is like similar to anarchism. Um, and this idea that like there are examples of people working on big problems together and volunteering their time and using non-hierarchical, you know, authority structures to to get things done. Um, and I'm trying to figure out like how much of it is generalizable that we can bring back and like what things we'd have to leave behind um, in trying to apply these principles. Do, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, you know, I think something that's worth noting is that humans in general are hierarchical. Mm -hmm. It's not just that, like, social, it's not just that, like, you know, government imposes a hierarchy or companies impose a hierarchy. It's that humans themselves impose a hierarchy. It's not true of all people. There are non hierarchical people. There are people that will just reject any social hierarchy. But there are also lots of people that will automatically construct social hierarchies. Some people will try to put themselves at the top of the social hierarchies, other people will look for someone to be above them mm -hmm. and will try to put someone above them. Uh, so I think that's worth noting that that's actually like something fundamental about human nature. And so I don't, you know, I don't think because of that, I think it's very difficult to get rid of all social hierarchy. Um, you know, certain groups of people, maybe they're all non-hierarchical can do it, uh, if they're all together. But, um, but I do think, you know, and, and I think, you know, the a challenge with Burning Man is to come out and say, oh man, this was such a wonderful week. Can't we do this all the time? I think mm -hmm. no, we can't. Like it, it is, it can only be there for a limited time. That being said, I do think there are elements of it. Like, hey, could we change social structures a little bit so that people actually give to each other more and get joy out of giving, rather than viewing things as like a you know zero sum game? And I think there are elements like that we can bring home. Yeah, and and I mean, anarchists will not be opposed to all hierarchy. It'd just be unjust hierarchy. So you know, if you're walking with a small child and they want to run into the street, uh, you stop them. That's a justified hierarchy. Mm -hmm. You have a better information than they do and their interests at heart. Um, but, you know, unjust hierarchy might be um, in some people's minds like, you know, ICE uh, using the authority of the United States government to remove people from their the place that they're now living mm -hmm. and, and send them to another country. Um, but, yeah, I, one of the things I also really appreciate out there is that there's no real like status hierarchy, like there's no VIP experience or section. There are certain camps that are exclusive. Um, but especially if you compare it to other festivals where, you know, there's just myriad ways where you're reminded you're not like one of the special people. Um, Burning yeah. Man like, is really good about like, you know, we're all in the same kind of boat in this situation. Yeah, it is really cool. And I mean, the vast majority of camps, you could just walk up to it and interact with it. And you kind of just like everyone else, which is really cool. Obviously, there are exceptions of you know, people there tried to make things exclusive, but it, it actually is pretty rare. Yeah. Yeah. I've worked at the airport and, uh, you know, greeted the planes as they come in and, you know, these are the richest people coming to Burning Man and they still have to wait in line and like, you know, you take them through customs and, 
kind of like haze people as they're coming in or do group hugs or whatever it is that you want. Um, and I think just setting that tone, it's like, I mean, for some of the celebrities and, and very rich people that go, they like going because they're treated like regular people. Then some of them try and just like recreate the hierarchies that exist out in the real world <laughs> out there as well. Um, any, so Spencer, yeah, you've got a lot of things that I'm sure you'd like to plug. Um, what would you like listeners to know about? How can they find more about you? Yeah, well, so if you're interested in the stuff we talked about today, I definitely recommend checking out clearthinking.org. Got over free, uh, over 20 free tools and tests that you can try out, learn different things about yourself, about how you make decisions, and so on. One, um, one of my favorites is the common misconceptions quiz, which we didn't talk about, but it's like 15 true things and 15 false things, and you have to guess which is which and how confident you are. So you can see both like what things are, these are actually true, and then also get a better sense of like how good you are assessing your own uh, accuracy. Yeah, that's a fun one. We also have a political bias test that helps you measure whether you're biased politically, which is kind of fun. I was completely unbiased politically. That's not true. I, I scored well on political knowledge, but definitely had some bias there. <laughs> so that's a fun one too. Um, then if, if you um, think you might be depressed or someone you love might be depressed, you might want to check out Uplift. It's, it's called Uplift for Depression. You can find it in the app stores. Or if you are an anxious person, you might check out MindEase. It's uh, two words, M-I-N-D space E-A-S-E. Uh, it's also in the app stores. Um, and then if you want to learn more about my, me or what I do, you can check out our website, sparkwave.tech. So sparkwave.tech. Tech. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, well, cool. Spencer, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. This has been The Most Interesting People I Know. If you enjoyed the show, please rate it on iTunes. I don't know why this matters, but every other podcast I listen to asks people to do this. Music is by me. Podcast design is by Jacob Abrowitz. I hope you enjoyed the show.